What a great uh, line, for the love of my king. I will sing for the love of my king. I couldn't help but uh, be reminded as so we were singing that of what I recently heard another pastor say that uh, the grand storyline of redemption is the king returns, slays the dragon, rescues his bride, takes her to his castle, and they live happily ever after. We're the bride of Christ. And uh, we long for that day when our king will return. And he'll slay the dragon, Satan. And he'll take us home to heaven where we will live happily ever after. So what a precious thought. Well, take your Bibles and let's go back to our study in the book of Romans this morning. We had a week off last week and we're reminded of why we are about to do what we do every Sunday and that is open up God's word and read it and talk about what it means and how it applies to our lives. And hopefully as Don Whitney said uh, last week that you have the confidence coming to this church when the Bible is opened and read that what is said afterwards in the sermon will actually come from that passage. It'll actually be based on what was read. And that's the, the simplest definition of expository preaching that I've ever heard is that the point of the message is the point of the text. That's all we're talking about. Is that my job is just to, to read the word, explain the word, Exhort us all to to live it out and apply it, and then sit down. Not say anything more or less than what the scripture says. And that's a challenge when it comes to a text like we find ourselves in here in Romans, Romans chapter 9, probably one of the most difficult portions of scripture uh, anywhere, Old or New Testament, because Paul brought up that notorious subject of election. And so we've been working our way through this text, and this is message number three that we're calling unconditional election. And uh, it's really uh, the main point is in verses 6 through 29. We've already looked at verses 6 through 18, and so let's pick up where we left off last time in verse 19, and I'll read from verse 19 through 29. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. 
As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Father, we humble our minds before this text and before you this morning. We confess that this passage is hard to understand, but maybe even harder to accept. But it's here, and we know that it's here for a reason for us to grapple with. And we, we ask, Lord, this morning that you would grant us grace to understand a little better this mysterious doctrine of election and that you would also grant us the faith to accept it in our hearts, even though we may not be able to understand it in our minds. Because it's here in your word. And so would you be pleased, Lord, as we wrangle with this truth while not wrangling with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time I began by giving a brief church history lesson on two men, Jacobus Arminius and John Calvin, who both live on in the church to this day through two theological systems known as Arminianism and Calvinism. I provided a couple sheets on the back tables. If you maybe didn't see them when you were coming in, I'd encourage you to grab them as you go. But these are two uh, little resources that I found very helpful uh, personally to think through um, the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism, these two doctrinal positions. And so I have one uh, sheet back there, the five points of Calvinism, what we know as TULIP. Uh, Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, the the doctrines of grace, uh, put right alongside the five points of Arminianism, which is where it all started. Um, It was Arminians, um, the Arminians' uh, disciples or students who picked the fight. And uh, Calvin just, well, Calvin wasn't even the one who responded. It was the church leaders in the day drew from Calvin's writings and teachings and used it to retaliate against this attack on the biblical doctrine of salvation. And so there's a good little sheet back there. And then there's also a sheet that uh, just simply explains the doctrines of grace, Um, just gives a little simple definition of each one of those. And uh, I would commend this to you. Uh, This is very, very helpful if you want just a quick overview. What are we talking about? These flower things, tulips and, you know, and and uh, what, what are these doctrines of grace? What do you mean by that? Grab a sheet, read through it. And if you have any questions, please uh, talk to me, talk to our elders, our pastors. We would love to kind of help uh, walk you through uh, some of these more challenging concepts that we find in God's word. But this, this ongoing controversy between these two opposing doctrinal positions, which, which oftentimes 
uh, erupts in heated conversations and harsh divisions among Christians really just comes down to the fact that they each emphasize two opposite and seemingly contradictory truths about salvation, which are both clearly taught in Scripture. Arminians emphasize the responsibility of man in salvation, whereas Calvinists emphasize the sovereignty of God in salvation. And therein is the rub, because you, you have man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, both of which are taught equally throughout the Scripture. There are just as many verses that talk about man's responsibility as there are that talk about God's sovereignty. And so you can't pit, well, look at all these verses that, that talk about man's responsibility. I'm like, I agree with you. But, but look at all these verses that talk about God's sovereignty and vice versa. That the Bible says that God controls everyone and everything, and it also says that man is responsible and accountable for his actions. The Bible says God chooses those who are saved, and at the same time, it says that man must choose to repent and believe in order to be saved. Consequently, we must believe both and never teach one to the exclusion of the other, but seek to keep them in perfect balance without overemphasizing or overlooking either. I read somewhere years ago that... that um, as a pastor, you should preach like an Arminian and pray like a Calvinist. And uh, I've been accused over the years from some of our more staunch reform folks in the church, man, can you sound like an Arminian today in the pulpit, man? You were telling people they needed to make a decision to follow Christ and they needed to repent, they needed to believe and, and, and they needed to, you know, uh, man, you were sounding like, I said, yeah, but did you listen to me pray after I got done preaching? What did I pray? I said, Lord, I just asked these folks to do something that they can't do in and of themselves. So would you grant them repentance and faith? It's not an either or, it's a, it's a both and. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, none of this makes any sense. And you know what? You're absolutely right. It doesn't make any sense to us. It's what theologians call an antinomy. I don't know if you ever heard that term before, an antinomy, which is an apparent contradiction between two undeniable but seemingly irreconcilable truths. Leave it to J.I. Packer to write the, the classic treatment of this concept of antinomy. It's in his little book, uh, called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. How many have ever read that book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God? Okay, if you've not read that book, you need to go get it and read it. It's, it's, it's profound. Let me just read for you a portion of what he wrote in that book. He said, an antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. There are cogent reasons or logical reasons for believing each of them. Each rests on clear and solid evidence, but it is a mystery to you how they can be squared with each other. 
You see that each must be true on its own, but you do not see how they can both be true together. But the evidence is there, and so neither view can be ruled out in favor of the other. The two seemingly incompatible positions must be held together, and both must be treated as true. And then he says this, such a necessity scandalizes our tidy minds, no doubt, but there is no help for it if we are to be loyal to the facts, accept it for what it is, and learn to live with it. Refuse to regard the apparent consistency as real, put down the semblance of contradiction to the deficiency of your own understanding. Think of the two principles as not rival alternatives, but in some way that at present you do not grasp complementary to each other. We may be sure that they find their reconciliation in the mind and counsel of God. And we may hope that in heaven we shall understand them ourselves. But meanwhile, our wisdom is to maintain with equal emphasis both the apparently conflicting truths, to hold them together in the relation in which the Bible itself sets them, and to recognize that here is a mystery which we cannot expect to solve in this world. That's good stuff. And his basic point is we need to learn to live with this age-old tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The way I've viewed this over the years is two parallel lines, if you will. Maybe a train track would be a good um, picture to have in your mind. You're standing on, on, on on the center of a train track, and you've got these two rails that are parallel, running side by side, and and they look parallel. But as you look off into the horizon, what happens? They come together in our mind's eye, right? And, and that's what we look forward to. We look forward to that day when these things are going to come together off on the horizon, i.e. heaven. Another maybe picture that you could get in your minds is that of engine gears. If you're a mechanical mind, you understand how engine gears work. There's typically two or more gears going in opposite directions, but they fit together and they work together to bring about man's salvation. So you've got God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. They, they fit together like gears and they're going in opposite directions. They appear, right? But they're working together to accomplish the bigger picture. Packer includes a quote from C.H. Spurgeon in his book, Evangelism and Sovereignty of God. He said Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And this is Spurgeon, classic Spurgeon. He said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. <laughs> See, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are not enemies. They're friends. They don't compete with each other. They cooperate with each other and they complement one another. And so we should never try to reconcile what the Bible never seeks to reconcile. In fact, God places these things side by side, sometimes in the same verse, and just makes us deal with it. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter was preaching 
to the Jews who had just rejected their Messiah. He said, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, it was God's idea to crucify his son. You, he says, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So who's to blame for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? God takes responsibility for it, but he also holds his people accountable. How about John? John chapter 6, verse 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's God's sovereignty in salvation. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's man's responsibility. So what is it? Is it God calling you to himself and, or you coming to him? Yes. It's the mystery of salvation. You've heard me use this illustration before, but I find it so helpful I want to share it again. And this, this whole idea of God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, it's as if we were standing at the doorway of heaven as it were, and we see a big sign over the, the gates of heaven that says, whosoever will may come. And so we're like, all right, I'm coming. And so you repent of your sin and you place your faith in Christ and you commit your life to follow him as your Lord and Savior and, and you're saved and guess what? You go to heaven and, and you, get, you get to heaven someday and you turn around and on the inside of the gate, there's a big sign that says chosen before the foundation of the earth. And as William MacDonald said so well in his commentary, he said, thus the truth of man's responsibility faces people as they come to the door of salvation and the truth of sovereign election is a family truth for those who have already entered. Election is a, the family secret, okay? It's not something you lead with when you're out there sharing the gospel with unbelievers. Your job is just to tell them, hey, guess what? There's a God who, 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 who loves you and uh, he sent his son to die for you and, and, and if you want to receive him, repent of your sin, receive him, you, you can be saved. You can have the hope of heaven. And they do that by the grace of God and they come to church and they start going through the book of Romans and they're like, whoa, here I thought I had, that was my decision when really it wasn't my decision to begin with, it was God's decision and he granted me the grace to make that decision. And so all of this say, we're here in Romans 9, and Paul was emphasizing God's sovereignty and salvation. Romans 9 is all about Israel's past election. But as we're going to see in the weeks to come, he was quick to provide a counterbalance in chapter 10 giving equal emphasis to man's responsibility and salvation. And we're going to see in chapter 10, Israel's present rejection. In other words, God, while God's will was not that every Jew would be saved, he did not sovereignly choose every Jew to be saved. He holds every Jew responsible for their rejection of Christ. As we wade our way back into this text here, let me, again, for those of you who might be 
visiting today or maybe weren't here for the last couple of messages, let me give you a definition of election just so you know what we're talking about here and what Paul is talking about here. Um, This is how I would define election. Before the creation of the world, God chose to rescue some out of the mass of depraved damn humanity to enjoy eternal life in heaven while passing over the rest and allowing them to suffer the just consequences of their unbelief and disobedience in eternal torment in hell. Now, we need to define that a little further by saying that God's choice of those who would be saved was uninfluenced or unprompted by anything in them. It was based purely on God's free sovereign will. That's why we call it unconditional election. God did not select us to be saved based on who we are or what we've done, but based entirely on his unearned, undeserved kindness and favor towards us. And Paul knew that when people heard that, Serious questions, serious objections would naturally come into people's minds or out of people's mouths in response to what he was writing here about unconditional election. And last time we looked at the first of two major protests in this passage. Today we're going to look at the second one. Uh, The last one, the first one is in verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God is there. And Paul says, may it never be. And then today, verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Again, we need to understand these statements and Paul's teaching here in its proper context. And so we need to keep in mind that Paul brought up the subject of election to defend God's character against those who might be wondering if he has been unfaithful to his word in light of the fact that, that the majority of Jews had rejected Christ. And Verse 6 is the key to understanding this, this, these verses. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, if, if most of God's chosen people who are recipients of all of God's promises and, and, and privileges uh, are indeed accursed, as Paul stated in verse 3, he wished that he himself would be accursed separated from Christ on behalf of his brethren so that his brethren could be saved. In other words, I'd, I wish I could go to hell so that they could go to heaven. If that's true, then it appears that God has failed to keep his word. And if he hasn't kept his promises to Israel, then why would we think he would keep his promises to us? All these promises that Paul is making to us in chapter 8. Why should we believe them? And so in verses 6 through 29, Paul sets out here to vindicate or defend God's faithfulness by revisiting Israel's past election and revealing how the doctrine of election puts on display all of God's glorious attributes. And so in verses 9 through 13, we saw how Paul used two examples from Israel's history to show that a person's salvation is not determined by who they are or or what they do, but on God's free sovereign choice, God's choice of Isaac and not Ishmael and Jacob and not Esau clearly proves that election is unconditional. He just says it in verse 13. Well, verse 11, he says they were twins. 
And before they were born and not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. He says, the older will serve the younger, and just as written, that Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And Paul knew the immediate reaction to anyone who read what he said or heard what he said, whoa, 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 time out, Paul, that is not what? Fair. That's not fair. That's how we know he was teaching unconditional election. If there was no reaction, it'd be like, oh, well, yeah, I think election, you know, God just looked down the cords of time and he, he kind of saw who would respond and, and he picked us accordingly and I'm, I'm good with that. I'm comfortable with that setup because that, now I have, I have something to do with my salvation. And, and I, I, I can understand that. You wouldn't have people protesting as violently as Paul was anticipating. They knew exactly what he was saying. And so Paul adamantly responded that it's unthinkable that God would be unjust because it's impossible for God to be unjust. And so the very thought that, that, that we could suffer even the slightest injustice from God is blasphemous. He says, may it never be. And we learned that besides just the wrong question when it comes to salvation, you don't want justice. <laughs> be careful what you ask for. Because that means you'll get what you deserve. And what do we all deserve? Death and hell. We want what? Mercy. That's what we want. And thankfully, God chooses to have mercy on some of us, which means he doesn't give us what we deserve. And he went on in verses 15 to 18. We looked at this last time. Paul used two more examples from the Old Testament that demonstrate that God has the freedom to do whatever he wants, but that he is bound by his character to, to only and always do what is right. And he brings up Israel's famous deliverer, Moses, Israel's notorious oppressor, Pharaoh. He compares and contrasts them. Bottom line is they were both wicked sinners, murderers even. They were both equally worthy of God's judgment and wrath, but God chose to have mercy on Moses and to harden Pharaoh and let him experience the just consequences of his sin. He says, verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. In other words, salvation is not based on our desires, not based on our deeds. It's not based on any decision we make or any action we take, it's entirely apart from human effort and exclusively based on God's mercy. And he says in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Again, Paul knew, he knew that as soon as that came out of his mouth, or off of his, off of his pen, right, that, that there was going to be some people, some resistance, if you will, to his insistence that God has the right to do whatever he wants. And so he kind of beats his uh, imaginary opponents to the, to the punch here, and he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? In other words, how can God blame anyone for their rebellion against him if he already determined their destiny from the beginning? Trying to get logical now, aren't we? 
which again, the Bible never does. The Bible is reticent to take the doctrine of election to its logical conclusion. So therefore, we shouldn't take the doctrine of election to its logical conclusion either. But the question is, if, if God determines what happens, then how can he hold us responsible for what happens? If he's the one who ultimately decides who is saved, then why should I be held accountable for my decisions? And in fact, do my decisions even matter in light of God's sovereign decrees? And at face value, I will say that this seems like a legitimate question. Doesn't it? But based on Paul's response, it reveals an arrogant, defiant heart. Our natural bent as sinners is to evade any sense of personal responsibility for our sin. And we're always looking to shift the blame to someone or something other than ourselves. Our father, Adam, when God said, hey, uh, what's with the leaf outfit? Did, did you, how did you figure out you were naked? Did, uh, oh, bother, did you eat anything that I told you not to eat? Well, it is the woman that you gave me, God. And, well, Eve, well, it was the serpent, right? There was blame shifting, finger pointing, going all over the place in the garden. And it's been going on ever since. And ultimately, we point our fingers at who? God. The woman you gave me, God. Not really her fault. It's your fault. She was your idea, not mine. So we take our anger out on God, ultimately. And what this question implies is that God is responsible for our lost condition. It's really his fault if we end up going to hell. And sometimes unbelievers use the doctrine of election as an excuse for their unbelief and to justify their sinful rebellion. And they, they, they say things like, well, if I'm not one of God's elect, then there's nothing I can do about it anyway. Nothing I can do to change my fate. And so they take this fatalistic view of God's sovereignty. They have this fatalistic attitude. And they're completely denying everything the Bible talks about man's what? Responsibility. You want to know if you're one of God's elect? Repent and believe. And you'll know. Honestly, I think this is probably the, the main reason why so many Christians have a hard time accepting the fact that God is completely sovereign in the process of salvation because it seems to our human minds that we're nothing but robots, we're puppets, we're pawns in this divinely ordained and orchestrated cosmic play production. But I would submit to you that every one of you, regardless of where you think you stand on this issue of Arminianism and Calvinism, you do believe that God is sovereign in salvation. And I would tell you the proof of that is how you pray. How you pray. Not only do you praise God for saving you, 
but you also pray that God would save other people, which is evidence that you believe that salvation is of the Lord. If salvation is up to us, then why do we always thank God for our salvation? Why do we always beg God to bring our family and friends to salvation? If we think it's up to us, well, let's get out there and get after it. I'll let you know how it's going, God. See, whatever side you may take on this issue, in your heart, you believe in the sovereignty of God. We may argue on our feet, but on our knees, we all agree. Again, J.I. Packard in Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he said, all Christians believe in divine sovereignty, but some are not aware that they do <laughs> and mistakenly imagine and insist they reject it. People see that the Bible teaches man's responsibility for his actions. They do not see how this is consistent with the sovereign lordship of God over those actions. They are not content to let the two truths live side by side as they do in the scriptures, but jump to the conclusion that in order to uphold the biblical truth of human responsibility, that they are bound to reject the equally biblical and equally true doctrine of divine sovereignty and to explain away the great number of texts that teach it. Well, the good news is Paul makes it clear here, made it clear that we are not robots. We are not puppets. We are not pawns but we are lumps of clay in the hands of the potter. And in these verses, verses 20 through 29, Paul responded to this, this question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? He, he responds to that question with a series of rhetorical questions of his own. And he used one of the most well-known illustrations from the Old Testament to show that God has a right to do anything he wants and we have no right to question anything he does. Did you get that? God has the right to do anything he wants and we have no right to question anything he does. So if you have an outline in front of you, just three simple points this morning First of all, the prerogative of God's actions. The prerogative of God's actions in verse 20. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Paul rebuked the insolence of the creature who has the audacity to find fault with their sovereign creator. There's nothing more rude or arrogant or disrespectful than when sinful, finite beings talk back to a holy, infinite God. Lamentations chapter three, verse 37. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is not from the mouth of the most high that both good and ill go forth? In other words, isn't God sovereign over everything? And then Jeremiah says, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Who, who are you? A sinful human being to, to, to answer back, to complain against God? Job 40. God confronted Job at the end 
of all this wrestling and wrangling he was going through with his so-called counselors, the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Seriously, you're going to find fault with the Almighty God of the universe? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? And I love this. I lay my hand on my mouth. I'm sorry, I should have never said a a single word. Who am I? I'm insignificant compared to you. And so Paul is simply saying how inappropriate it is for us to to call into question the one who ordained the end from the beginning and who's never learned anything because he already knows everything and who is perfect in wisdom and love and always does what is right. How could we question him? Now, I think it's important to know that there's nothing wrong with asking legitimate questions if we're humbly, sincerely trying to understand God and his ways. I know I've not answered all your questions about election. And, and by the way, if you find someone who can, please introduce them to me because I've got some of my own questions I'd like to ask them about it. Thankfully, however, our salvation does not depend on whether or not we understand everything the Bible says about election It's a mystery. And at the end of the day, even though it may not make sense in our minds, we accept it in our hearts by faith simply because it is undeniably and unavoidably revealed in the pages of Scripture. But having said that, it's obvious Paul was not addressing a confused seeker of the truth but a brash, angry rebel who just wanted to wrangle with God about his right to be God. And so he goes for the illustration, that familiar analogy that was frequently used in the Old Testament of the potter and the clay. He says, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? We don't have time this morning to look at all the passages um, in the Old Testament that refer to this idea of uh, the potter and the clay, but it was a, a popular illustration that the prophets liked to use, Jeremiah in particular, Jeremiah uh, chapter 18, verses one through six, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel, but the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So he says, who are you? The, 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 the thing that is molded you know, can't talk back to the thing or the person who's molding it. 
and protesting, well, why did you make me this? I wanted to be this. As if he did something against our will. Notice verse 21, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Notice that the potter has the right. It's his prerogative as a potter. It's the the potter's prerogative. Maybe that's a book title right there. The potter's prerogative, right? The potter has the right to pick up a lump of clay and make it anything he wants. He could make a decorative vase to set up there on the mantle, or he could make some everyday cooking pot that gets thrown in a cupboard somewhere and is taken out to, you know, fry up something. And while the potter has the right to do what he wants with the clay, conversely, the clay has no right to complain. Paul's point is that God has every right to do whatever he wants with us. He can either pardon us or punish us. And it's completely out of line for any of us to challenge his decisions and actions. God is under no obligation to save anyone. He doesn't owe us anything. You may remember the the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, Matthew chapter 20, where the, the landowner had some work to be done and he went out at the beginning of the day and he hired some guys. And then he went out in the middle of the day, hired some more guys. And then he went out at the end of the day, maybe like one hour left in the work day and he hired those guys. And then when the the whistle blew at the end of the day, he lined them all up and he started with the guys that he'd hired last and he gave them a full day's pay. And the guys down at the end of the line who had been working all day going, check this out, this is gonna be payday. We're gonna gonna, gonna get a ton of money. I mean, he's giving these guys who work for an hour a full day's wage. What are we gonna get? And he went down the line and he gave every one of them the same amount of money, a full day's wage. And you could hear the protesting going on in the hearts and the minds of those guys that had labored all day long, and they got the same as the guys that just had to work for an hour. And the landowner knew it. And this is what he said, Matthew 20, 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? We don't belong to ourselves. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. We belong to God. God says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And so that's the prerogative of God's actions. Now, secondly, let's look at the presentation of God's attributes. The presentation of God's attributes, verse 22. What if, another rhetorical question here, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Again, don't forget, we said this in previous weeks, God doesn't have to do anything for us to go to hell. We're already going there. He simply leaves us alone since we're already heading there from the moment we're conceived. David said in Psalm 51.5 that that I was conceived in sin, right? I was conceived in iniquity. Paul said in 
Ephesians 2, 3, by nature we are objects of his wrath. We are children of his wrath. We are doomed to spend eternity in hell because of our unbelief. You say, hey, wait a minute though, but it sure sounds like God's doing something here. He's preparing us. Notice it says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? See? I appreciate the insight of one faithful commentator that I trust. And he said this, the Greek verb rendered prepared in this instant is passive. How interesting. In other words, God is not the subject doing the preparing. There is a very clear sense in this use of the passive voice to relieve God of the responsibility and to put it fully on the shoulders of those who refuse to heed his word and believe in his son. They are prepared by their own rejection for a place, hell, prepared by God, not originally for them, but for the devil and his angels. And so he says, what if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. I think Paul still had in mind the guy he just got done talking about in the previous section, Pharaoh. God could have killed Pharaoh the very first time he refused to listen to Moses and, and, and refused to, to release the Israelites from slavery. He could have took him out. No need for all 10 plagues, man. One lightning bolt would have sufficed. Shazam. Pharaoh's gone. But God chose instead to be patient with Pharaoh, to give him more time to repent. But also to give himself more time to reveal his awesome power so that the whole world would know that there is no greater savior, there's no greater redeemer than him. Who is like our God? So the Israelites could say, who is like our God? Do you see those 10 plagues? Messing with the, the Egyptians kind of right next door and frog, frogs all up in their house and we got none in our house and their firstborn dying and ours aren't. And who, I mean, who is like our God that can do that? that can be that precise, like scalpel precision when it comes to plagues, like natural disasters, right? And guess what? God continues to put up with us. <laughs> he continues to put, us up, put up with our sinful rebellion as his creatures. Why? Because he has no pleasure in the death of anyone, Ezekiel 18.32. Therefore, repent and live. God didn't have some, take some sick pleasure in, 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 in inflicting Pharaoh with all of these plagues and the nation or the Egyptians with all these plagues. He, he took no pleasure in that. He wanted him to repent. He wanted him to get saved. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. Like, hey, what's up? God said he was coming back and man, it's been a while. What's taking him so long? He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
So if you're not a believer yet, the time is now. God has been very patient with you up to this point. And he wants you to repent and he wants you to live for him. Notice he goes on, verse 23, and he did so. Why was he patient? Why did he endure with much patience vessels of wrath like Pharaoh? He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. And here, guess what? That Greek verb, same verb, same word, prepared, in this verse is in the active voice, which indicates that the subject doing the action is God this time. This is God's work. Can I just say this? And, and again, I said this a few weeks ago. We always make salvation about us. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared born for glory. Listen, salvation is not primarily about the benefits we receive, but about the honor and glory that God receives from all that he does to save us. It's about God, not about us. And this is a helpful passage because it, 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 it addresses that age-old question about the origin of evil. Like, where did sin come from? Why is there sin? Well, God is not the author of sin. Scripture makes that clear. But it was all part of God's sovereign plan for sin to enter into the world so he could put on display all of his glorious attributes in dealing with it. In other words, we would never know about God's justice or his wrath or his grace, his mercy, his love, his wisdom, his power, if there were not sin. And so he says, God wanted to make known the riches of his glory, all of his glorious attributes. Glory is a summary word for all that, all that God is, all of his glorious attributes put on display. He gets to show off in our salvation. So he gets all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. And even in our human minds, that may sound arrogant, but it's not. Because he's God and he's perfect. He's not arrogant. He's not prideful like we tend to be. See, we can't fathom these things, how we could do those things and not be arrogant and not be prideful, but the difference is he's God and we're not. And let's not bring God down and make him like us. God created us in his image, right? Let's not create him in our image. So what is he saying here? Paul's saying, listen, God is glorified through both the salvation of believers but also the damnation of unbelievers. God's gonna get glory either way. Whether people go to heaven or they go to hell, he gets glory. 
And notice what he says here in verse 24. Oh, by the way, I'm talking about us here. I'm not just talking about the Jews back in the Old Testament times, Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Moses and Pharaoh. I'm, I'm talking about us, even us, whom he also called. Don't forget verse 29, right? To those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Okay, so he's talking again about us as believers, even us whom he has called, believers, Christians, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So he's saying, hey, guess what, guys? I'm talking about us. And I'm not just talking about Jews. I'm talking about Gentiles here. All this stuff about God's election doesn't just apply to the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament. It applies to Gentiles now, here and now. We are in the same category as vessels of mercy. If you're a Christian, that's, that's you. Bracket that. You're a vessel of mercy. And this simple statement about even those whom he has called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, that's really a foundational statement he just kind of poured some concrete right there in that verse um, because a lot of what he's going to say in the next few chapters will be built upon that statement about how God set aside all but a remnant of the nation of Israel and is now bringing in all of those who've been chosen for salvation, those who've been purchased by the blood of Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation, i.e. the Gentiles who would be united with the Jews into one new body called the church. And then just, just quickly, I know there's like, whoa, we still got a lot more to go here and it's all Old Testament verses and they're all big and yelling at me here. Um, listen, these next five verses, all Paul was doing was he, he was moving from the patriarchs to the prophets in order to support his effort to vindicate the faithfulness or trustworthiness of God. And he, he just quoted two Old Testament saints, Hosea and Isaiah, to prove that the rejection of the Jews and the inclusion of the Gentiles has always been part of God's plan of salvation. It's exactly what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And so he quotes Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and who were not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that, the, that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people there, they shall be called sons of the living God. just referring to the fact that Israel, the, in, in this case, the northern tribes had been abandoned by God during the Assyrian captivity for their unbelief and, and, and he was promising their future restoration. And in, in the meantime, while the people of Israel are presently alienated and separated from God, God is fulfilling his plans to bring in those who were not a people and make them a part of his people. That's us, Gentiles. And so Hosea's prophecies show that God's mercy is wide enough to include the Gentiles. And then he moves on to Isaiah, 
who, whose prophecies show that God's justice is focused enough to exclude some of the Israelites. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, through, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. Again, what's the point here? If we're not for God's grace and mercy, no one would have survived not the Israelites, not the Gentiles, all of us would be wiped out completely. But God has spared a remnant from experiencing his wrath, just like he spared Lot and his family in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the exclusion of the Jews, the fact that they rejected the Messiah and now the inclusion of the Gentiles, it's, it's all part of God's plan from the very beginning. And Israel's unbelief is consistent with Old Testament revelation. And so the bottom line is God's word has not failed. God has been faithful to his word. He has been true to his promises. His word has been fulfilled exactly as he said it would. Warren Wiersbe said it well. He said, God rejected the Gentiles and chose the Jews so that through the Jews, he might save the Gentiles. And then I thought, you also need to add this, and then through the Gentiles, save the Jews in the end. Because we're going to find out that the Jews get jealous that we were invited to the party. And, it, and, and God uses it to bring to Repentance. Notice one other quick statement here, and we'll be done. Notice verse 29, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. In other words, we would have been torched, all of us. That Lord of Sabaoth is translated Lord of hosts, which refers to God's sovereignty over everything. And I want to just uh, read this last quote from Spurgeon. I don't know how this guy always says it so well, but he did. Spurgeon said this, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. The doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne on the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends to his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim and enthrone God, and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed at. 
And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love, but it is God upon the throne that we love and we love to preach. And it is God upon his throne whom we must trust. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are vessels of your mercy who you have sovereignly chosen to save and to shape into the image of Christ. And we know that even eternity will not be long enough to praise you and thank you for this undeserved, unearned kindness and favor that we have been displayed by you in saving us such prideful, rebellious sinners. And so, Lord, we are just humbled and we just want to praise you and thank you. And Lord, give us a burden for the vessels of wrath who are those unbelievers who are still out there under your wrath, Lord, as long as they have breath, there's hope for them, and that we would get out there and and, and share the good news of the gospel with them. Help us, Lord, to learn this truth well and live it well also, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, hey, before you get up, something we got to do really quick here. And uh, we have the privilege of uh, welcoming 13 new folks into uh, this body of believers we call Lakeside Bible Church. And so I'm going to quickly call their names and they're going to come and they're just going to covenant with us this morning and uh, we'll have an opportunity just to pray for them and then you can come greet them um, after the service. So as you hear your name, please come forward. Christian Chadester, Jerry and Melinda Dunbar. Andrew Garay, Charles and Leachy Jensen, Doug and Marsha Logan, and uh, Doug is, is batching it uh, this weekend. His wife has gone to see the grandkids, so just wanted you to know that, but Marsha's a sweetheart. You'll enjoy getting to know her. George and Estella Lopez, Connie Sanders, Greg Sanders, and then Manga. And I'm not even going to try to say your last name, Manga. We all know you. We love you, okay? (laughs) All right. Well, hey, if you guys wouldn't mind turning and and facing me, all of these folks have been through a a class we call Life at Lakeside, and uh, they filled out a a membership application. They've shared their testimonies with us, and uh, it's been a joy to get to know them and to hear their stories of how they've come to know Christ, and now they want to come and uh, join this church and be a part of us. And so... uh, With that being said, I'm going to ask you some questions, and you guys can just respond by saying, we will, okay? As a member of Lakeside Bible Church, will you protect the unity of this church by acting in love toward other members, by refusing to gossip, and by following the leaders? Okay, will you share the responsibility of this church by praying for its spiritual growth, by inviting the unsaved to attend, and by warmly welcoming those who visit? Will you serve the ministry of this church by discovering your gifts and talents, being equipped to serve by the pastors and elders, and by developing a servant's heart? We will. And then lastly, will you support the testimony of this church by attending faithfully, giving regularly, and living a godly life? We will. All right, let me pray for you guys. Father, we are so grateful for these new folks that you brought uh, to us. I pray that you would grant us grace to serve them well, that we would be a blessing to them. But Lord, I also pray that you would grant them grace to serve us well and to be a blessing to us. And 
They're joining a body, and we all have a, a role to play, a function to fill. And I just ask that uh, these folks would assimilate quickly, um, uh, and they would uh, assimilate intimately into the body life of our church, that we would do a good job loving them and, and, and bringing them in and, and accepting them, and uh, just pray that you would use them, Lord, to fill up where we're lacking as a church, and to balance us out, make us more well-rounded, and that we could be used by you as well to help them grow and mature and become more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.